Yo, yo, what up everyone? This is your life coach, Jacob Sokol, and welcome to WTF Should I Do With My Life. You're about to access a roadmap specifically designed for people in our generation, like you and me, who are looking to figure out how to create a life filled with happiness, success, and a deep sense of purpose, while simultaneously dealing with the challenges of today. Willpower. Science says it's an incredible predictor of your success in life, more so than your IQ seems like something worth having, but did you know that we aren't born with a fixed amount of willpower? In fact, it kind of works like a muscle does. In this interview with award-winning Stanford professor Kelly McGonigal, we talk about simple ways to apply the science of willpower into our lives. You'll also learn why willpower is such an incredible predictor of your success in life, everything you need to know about how to build your willpower muscle right now, a trick you can use in literally one minute to tremendously improve your willpower and focus, and how to deal with unhealthy technology habits, because we've all got those. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm really excited to help get some of your wisdom into the lives of my generation. I know how powerful it is, and I think it would be really cool if we could just give the listeners a little bit more background information about you and your story and your path, and um, I'm curious what some of the challenges were that you faced as a young adult and how you were able to deal with those. Well, so where I landed up is working as a lecturer and a psychologist at Stanford University um, and doing a lot of work in the public to help people make difficult changes in their lives, whether it's trying to improve their health or um, quit an addiction or improve relationships. Um, So that's sort of where I am now. And uh, gosh, thinking about some of the biggest challenges that I faced as a young adult, um, you know, I think of both the inner experiences that are really difficult to deal with as well as the outer circumstances. And in some ways, the the inner experiences, I think, were the the most challenging for me. Um, I experienced a lot of anxiety and perfectionism um, growing up and a lot of uh, internal pressure to, um, to perform and to outperform. Um, And so, you know, a a really big challenge for me in high school and then in college and then in graduate school uh, was figuring out, is there a form of motivation inside me besides terror? And is there a way to to go after what I want and do things that need to get done without having to to, um, suffer so much through it, to have that sense of um, whether it's anxiety or shame or dread, be the thing that I believed was motivating me to work hard uh, and to achieve my goals. And so that was probably like the biggest, the, the biggest journey or transition um, from the time I was a teenager is figuring out that actually there's this whole other way of going after what you want that um, is based on my values and based on uh, relationships with others and, and based on kind of motivation that just doesn't require uh, suffering through things that are difficult. Yeah, that's incredible. And I think so much of becoming a young ad- or becoming an adult is kind of going through that identity quest of looking inward to figure out like, who am I and what am I here to do and what motivates me and kind of like we never really get taught in, in life early on, especially 
how to create an optimal life. We never, we never, we didn't get that class. We got math and science, but where was the class about how do I deal with my emotions or my anxiety or my shame? We don't get a lot of role models. I mean, I remember growing up thinking there were a very limited number of jobs that one could even hold. You know, the idea that you could build your own career path using your unique strengths and talents and interests. I mean, what I do now doesn't really fit any perfect mold, but I definitely remember growing up being told that if you're smart or if you want to be successful, you can be a lawyer or a doctor, like period. Mm. And, yeah. um, and so that was another big challenge was realizing that I didn't have to do it anybody else's way. And that was a lesson that I had to learn even all the way through graduate school where there was a sort of a sense of one right way to be a scientist and one right way to be an academic. And that wasn't a really good fit for me. Yeah, I think there's some young adults who are coming across some of the literature, positive psychology literature, and are super passionate about optimal living, but they're not sure what those career options are which are available to them. And do you think that, like, people in those circumstances would need to go the academic route in order to engage with this line of work? Or do you think that there's opportunities opening up in the marketplace for people who are young and enthusiastic about these kind of ideas? You know, it's interesting. I, I get this kind of question a lot from people who are trying to, uh, to really find happiness and meaning in their own lives and get so inspired by the science or the, the positive psychology that then it, it seems as if, well, then, then that's what I should do with my life is share the science or share the psychology. Actually, I, I've been really encouraging people to, um, to think about applying the science in their own lives first. Um, because, it, you know, that's a, that's a unique role to fill in the world, to, um, to be an educator or a coach or a psychologist. And a lot of times when people really dig in and apply it to their own lives, they'll realize that actually there's a place in the world for them that may not look like anything they've ever seen before, um, whether it's, it's running a particular type of business that hasn't existed before or, um, you know, offering other types of services to the world from the point of view of positive psychology. And I think um, sort of the rush to go in and, and to be a coach or to, to be, um, you know, you see it in all sorts of communities where people find something that really has inspired them. And actually I think it's, it's really helpful to recognize that whatever you do and whatever path you choose, that if you are walking the walk uh, of the ideas that have inspired you, sometimes that's a, a more effective way to teach it than to, um, to, to focus so sort of literally on what it would mean to share that. I mean, just imagine if, like, every classroom teacher actually understood and lived the principles of positive psychology, you know, or, or if every person who was a manager somewhere in an office actually understood this and applied it. Yeah, right on. Cool. It's, a, it's an awesome distinction. And I'd love to touch base on the willpower instinct and mm -hmm. just if you could give us a quick crash course in what it is, um, how it works, and why it's so important. Yeah, so I teach this class at Stanford called The Science of Willpower, and it's, it's been incredibly popular in part because most people feel like they don't have any willpower. Um, or if they, if they have willpower, maybe they feel kind of exhausted and overwhelmed by having to use it all the time. And uh, so this class really takes apart the science of self-control and the science of motivation. And um, the, the willpower instinct itself refers to the fact that actually we all have a natural instinct when we recognize an inner conflict to um, sort of marshal our resources, to turn our brain uh, you know, on towards our, our most important goals and to recognize inner conflicts 
in a way that, that allows us to make really good choices that we're not going to regret in the future, whether it's making a healthy choice about what you eat or uh, you know, not getting into a fight when it would make a lot more sense to stay calm um, or you know, whatever the, sort of the impulse is that we need to regulate. And, uh, and the reason the book is called The Willpower Instinct is because it goes so counter to most people's intuitions that willpower is some sort of moral virtue or personality trait that you have or you don't have. And a big part of what uh, the Stanford class does is teach people how to train this willpower instinct. How do you get your brain better at recognizing when you're about to do something that conflicts with your goals? Because, you know, frankly, 90% of the time we don't even realize we've done it until after it's all over. And we're like, oh, why did I do that? Um, so you can train your, your ability to predict and, and actually see the consequences of a choice. Um, you can train the brain so that it's easier to regulate stress or regulate cravings and temptations. Now, you can train your brain to overcome the type of anxiety or even boredom that can make us procrastinate. And, um, and again, when we think of it as a, an instinct, it becomes a lot more, um, I think, a, a lot more hopeful than the sense that, that many people have of like somehow they miss the willpower gene and it's all over for them. Yeah, so what are some of the top practices that we can cultivate uh, that are that we can cultivate in order to optimize our willpower and start to make some of these better distinctions and decisions. Yeah, so some of them are actually quite easy, like getting enough sleep, and that's something people really do not appreciate. Um, there's some pretty funny research looking at mild sleep deprivation, like getting less than six hours of sleep a night, and showing that it impairs your self-control system of the brain as much as being drunk which I'm, you know, anyone who's been drunk understands that that is not very good for your self-control. Um, so even just getting a little bit more sleep seems to make the brain more likely to just be walking around in a state that uh, allows you to have the big picture and that allows you to regulate stress and emotions. Um, so even thinking about, like, just basic self-care, like if you were to think of your brain as something that needs to be nourished and well-rested and restored, uh, that kind of thing can make a huge difference in which version of you is out there in the world making decisions. Um, there are also things you can do that I think of as brain training. And uh, there are kind of two main practices that seem to have the biggest bang for their buck when it comes to training your brain for willpower. One is um, meditation and the other is physical exercise. And usually I figure you know, not everyone's gonna be willing to do both, but you're either probably willing to sit still and do nothing or go for a <laughs> run around the block, right? Somewhere there's gotta be like, one of those might seem more appealing than the other. Um, and meditation has been shown to basically train the brain for greater willpower by, um, by asking the brain to do things like pay attention, remember your focus, Notice when your mind is wandering and come back to your goal, to your intention to focus on the breath. Uh, and in doing so, it seems to train the brain like lifting weights would train your bicep. It makes the willpower areas of the brain bigger and better connected to the areas of the brain that they need to control, like the stress center of your brain. Uh, and then physical exercise seems to do it in a totally different way by making your brain more efficient, by increasing blood flow uh, and increasing your brain's ability to learn from new experiences. It can actually increase the overall plasticity of your brain um, so that you're going to be more receptive to feedback and you're going to get better at learning from every, um, every challenge that you face, even setbacks. Um, so you know, th those are some of the things that I usually would recommend right away. Get more sleep and then pick up exercise or meditation if that's not already part of your life. Do you meditate? 
Oh, yes. Uh, I, that was one of the first things that I found uh, growing up to support me. And um, part of the work that I do at Stanford is actually researching the benefits of meditation. We have a, an eight-week training program. Um, and I've also taught that to undergraduates at Stanford and been amazed to see the, the benefits that, that they are experiencing, too, after a very short introduction to meditation in terms of being able to deal with stress and developing self-compassion. Yeah, it's been incredible. I started meditating about two and a half years ago consistently on a daily basis, first thing when I wake up every morning, right? Um, and uh, and it's incredible, I mean, just to be able to have the presence to even be in this conversation right now, which three or four years ago, I, my mind would have been drifting in all different directions, and just to be able to keep focused on, oh, Kelly's talking about this, that's probably a cool thing that I should be paying attention to, and to actually be able to keep my mind there, that's incredible. It's a huge resource. So. It is. Presence is a great word to describe what it is, and presence is a big part of willpower. I mean, you know, I mentioned that the majority of choices we make are automatic, by default, and on habit. Maybe we're influenced by other people. We know that a lot of behaviors are contagious, you know, whether it's what you eat or how you spend your time. Uh, and, you know, something like meditation or even having that, that state of mind, that presence of mind, makes you a lot more immune to picking up the kinds of habits or decisions that you're going to end up regretting in the long run. Yeah. One of the things I came across from your line of work, um, from your work in particular, was you said, like, there aren't many quick fixes that you would suggest but that there is one that seems to do the job pretty quickly, and it's, it's slowing down our breathing to just a couple breaths per minute. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and how we could apply that just in our daily lives? Yeah, so one of the neat things to come out of the willpower research is um, the idea that you can see in people's bodies whether they have self-control or not. Um, and there's a particular biological measure called heart rate variability or heart rate breath synchronization that predicts whether people will be able to resist temptation, whether they will persist on a difficult task after they've had a failure experience, um, whether they're willing to delay gratification to get a bigger reward. All that those types of self-control seem to have the same biological signature in your body. And it's one that reflects a nervous system that is balanced between a state of readiness to act and uh, an ability to slow down and pause and reflect. And, and again, you can measure this by the fluctuations in your heart rate and how well your heart rate is synced up with your breathing. Um, and this has been called the willpower reserve in your body. And the, the reason that I recommend this slowing down the breath technique is because this is, uh, you, you can actually put yourself in this state. You can increase your heart rate variability by slowing down your breath to maybe six breaths a minute or a little bit slower than that possibly, which is really not that hard to do. Um, and you don't need any sort of training for this to work. Uh, you, the very first time you try it, it's going to shift your nervous system into a state where you have a bigger willpower reserve. And, um, and a lot of my students will use this technique in moments when they find themselves, say, you know, paralyzed by anxiety and unable to get started on something or maybe feeling under-motivated to, you know, go to the gym or, uh, or, or to handle, you know, a craving, in more serious cases, even an addiction and trying to figure out how to not give in to uh, very serious withdrawal or cravings. So literally in the moment, I'm like, I want that bag of chips. I, you know, it's in the cabinet. It's like calling my name. It's screaming, Jacob. And you, so six breaths a minute. So how would you suggest that we go about doing that? Is there a certain inhalation or exhalation count that we should be monitoring? or? What? So you could think about taking about 10 seconds per breath 
up to about 15 seconds per breath. So I usually would have people just pull out, you know, pull out the timer on the phone or if there's a clock nearby and just literally watch the second hand or watch the, the seconds tick by. And it's not that difficult to do. And one of the benefits, too, of, you know, if you have it on your phone, um, it, anything you do that's a little bit of a, a distraction away from this thing that is calling your name, I mean, even that can be a little bit of extra support. One of the reasons that it's so hard to overcome temptation is because temptation causes a kind of mental fixation on the, the object of, of desire. And uh, it's almost like putting on blinders. Um, and so anything you do that gets even your visual focus off of uh, whether it's, you know, an outer temptation or an inner experience, that can be supportive too. So just get the, you know, the phone out and time it, 10 seconds of breath, 15 seconds of breath. Yeah, that's really cool. And, you know, we live in this culture that constantly tempts us with these super normal allurements and bombards us with opportunities for instant gratification. And I'm curious what the dangers are of constantly being tempted with instant gratification and how that affects our willpower and what we can do about it. Yeah, one of uh, the things that I've been thinking a lot about lately is the two different ways that the brain can want something. And it seems like we have two different systems of motivation in the brain. One is the, the motivational system that responds to things like a text message coming in or you know, seeing some delicious food on a table. Uh, that says, oh, I need to do this now, I need to consume it now, I need to respond now, and it's going to make me happy right now, or it'll relieve some sort of stress right now. Uh, and then the brain has this other version of motivation that is like the slow burn motivation. It doesn't necessarily drive you to immediate action, but it has this very big picture view, uh, and it thinks about you know, what your experience is going to be like in the future as a consequence of a choice that you make. Um, it, it thinks about you in relationship to the world, not, you know, who do you want to be and what do you want to contribute, not just how do I want to feel in the next 10 seconds. Hmm. And the interesting thing about our society is that it is absolutely driving us toward that first version of want power or, or motivation. Um, something as simple as the devices that we use every single day. You know, every time we check our phones, we are reshifting back into the state of mind that's going to be most motivated by instant gratification. And here at the, the business school at Stanford, um, this is an emerging area of research and concern because all of us, including those who are talking about this, um, are addicted to our devices and, you know, starting to think about how we feel in our brains and bodies. Uh, when we get a little bit of a break from our devices versus our usual habit of, you know, waking and sleeping and, and living and breathing our devices. Yeah, as I was putting together the core topics for this for this virtual conference, there was, you know, this, this kind of topic that I feel like hasn't been addressed much but is pervasive and a thread through all of our lives, and it's this topic of technology. And I really couldn't find much information or much many solutions about what's going on and what exists and what we can do about it. And I came across some of the work that you put out there, just speaking about how technology can be a drug. And I think a lot of people can relate to this in some capacity, but personally, I, I know that there's been days where I've compulsively checked my iPhone a hundred times, you know, throughout the course of a day. So what should we be aware of when it comes to having an unhealthy addiction to technology and just living in the modern age? Well, so I, I definitely am not a, uh a proponent of getting rid of technology as a solution. I mean, sometimes you hear people make suggestions that I think are ridiculous, like giving up email, um, because I don't know how you function well in a society without using our technology. Um, so I started to think of it more like food. 
just like you, you can't starve, you have to eat, but we live in a world where the, the choices of what we consume can really get us into trouble. And so we need to think more strategically about what it is that we choose to eat at every meal. We can't just sort of let, uh, let food marketers dictate the choices or let what's easiest and most convenient dictate our choices. So I'm trying to think of like what the technology diet is where we recognize sort of where we can learn to recognize when we've had enough, that maybe we plan in advance a certain amount of time that we'll spend on a task, or we start to notice like what's the equivalent of social media empty calories, and at what point do you just feel depressed having looked at one more you know, Facebook link? Um, and to start to develop a kind of inner sense of what's fueling us, because there's a lot of things available online and through social media that make us feel connected, that make us feel optimistic, that, uh, that give us information we need, I'm sure like the program you're putting together. So that, that sort of nourishing technology is available too. And uh, I don't have an easy fix for it yet, but I think it's something that we just need to start to check in with ourselves. Yeah, I love that idea of the, the technology diet. So when I wake up in the morning, I make myself a green smoothie, and then I usually end up having a salad for lunch, and I stay away from meat. I know to hydrate myself. What are, what are some of the diet practices that you have in your own life surrounding how to deal with technology? Well, one thing is I think about, like, what's the first thing I'm going to check in the morning? And, and do I check first before I do something else? And, you know, like you, I meditate before I actually open up my laptop or pull out my phone. And then I think, like, well, what's the first thing I am going to check today? Is it going to be some gossip site or um, is it going to be a, a website where I know there's likely to be? Um, so for me, I often will check um, Science Daily, which has a list of uh, cool new studies that have just come out. And I just think, like, like, where do I want to put my attention today? Because it would be very easy to get trapped if I immediately go to a news site. You know, maybe I'm going to spend 45 minutes reading about the tragedies of the world and end up then feeling unable to get started on, on my own project. Or maybe I'm going to notice I feel less motivated now to, to exercise, having just inflicted myself with that kind of bad news. So I think thinking about, just like you said, what do you have for breakfast, like, what is your, your technology breakfast? Are you connecting with friends and family? Are you filling up on empty calories? And, um, and, like, and having that sense, again, of knowing when to say when. Like, what is your version of social media or technology gluttony? What's the thing where it's going to be like, you know, the Reese's peanut butter cup or whatever it is you couldn't stop eating? What's that thing for you? And, like, do you know, like, maybe you're not going to get started with that realistically? Let's take a look at some of my favorite big ideas from this interview. The first big idea, you don't have to become a positive psychologist to create a life of happiness. You know, a lot of people who are interested in being happier make the mistake of thinking they need to create careers in health and wellness, but you don't need to. All you need to do is apply the lessons that positive psychology teaches us in your own life. You can live a happy life without making a career out of happiness, and the proven happiness practices like exercise and meditation are relatively simple. If you can add those into your life, you're well on your way to being more happy. Big idea number two, the willpower instinct. When we think of willpower, we tend to assume that there are some people who are born with willpower and others who are lacking it. But in reality, everybody has a willpower instinct inside of them. It's just that some are exercising their willpower more than others. Yes, that's right. You can train your willpower just like you would train your bicep or your tricep or any other muscle in the gym. 
How do you do it? Well, one of the ways is to get into the habit of recognizing when you're about to do something that's destructive for your goals. Say you want to lose 20 pounds. Well, then you shouldn't be reaching for that chocolate bar. If you can realize that you're about to put that bar of chocolate into your mouth and you can stop the action, then you're training your brain to develop more willpower. So over time, you can build that muscle just like you would build any other muscle. Other ways to build willpower are meditation, physical exercise, and getting seven to eight hours of sleep at night. Research shows that if you're mildly sleep deprived, meaning that you're getting less than six hours of sleep, that's doing the same to your willpower as being drunk. Big idea number three, the willpower quick fix. Slow down your breathing. If you need a quick fix to boost your willpower when the bag of chips is lying next to you, try this. Slow down your breathing to about six breaths per minute. Doing so not only takes your mind off the chips, but it also helps to sync your heart with your breath. It's scientifically proven that people who have a higher level of willpower have a better sync between their heart rate and their breathing. This exercise is also beneficial if you're experiencing procrastination, stress, anxiety, cravings, or just a lack of motivation. Soul Sibling, thank you so much for rocking with us. I appreciate you, and I appreciate that you're using your time and your energy toward making yourself a better person and the world a better place. So if you'd like to keep in touch, I'd love it if you subscribe to the podcast, and I'm excited to deepen our relationship, to get to know each other better over time, and to see how I can help you solve meaningful challenges and create your most fulfilled life. We've got a great community over here, And we run retreats all over the world. We've got people who connect with each other and support each other and living the most fulfilled life. And what I'd suggest for your next step is to grab a copy of The 12 Things Happy People Do Differently. It's a scientific-based approach to happiness, and there's a lot of great wisdom out there, but this in particular is researched back from some of the world's leading positive psychologists in the world, and it's super grounded, super practical, how you could do these 12 things that happy people do differently and rock it. The article's been shared over 100,000 times on Facebook, and there's some magic in there. So in order to grab a copy of that, you can go to thankyoujacob.com. Sounds simple, and it is. Thankyoujacob.com, and uh, grab that immediately, and I will keep in touch through personal emails that I send out a couple times a month and all that goodness. So for now, sending you lots of love. Keep it real. Follow your heart, but bring your head. Peace.